Thank you for joining us on the Underdog Podcast, the place where we believe at one point in your life, you were an underdog and overcame adversity. And for that reason, we want to hear your story. I am your boy, Calvin Blackman. And I am Kyle Decker. This episode is powered by the Riley Decker Companies. The right decision. For more information, go to RileyDecker.com. Today, we want to welcome Chris Heron. Chris had multiple near-death experiences with drugs and alcohol, but with the unwavering support of his family and friends, Chris has been sober since 2008, and he now shares his story with the goal of making a positive difference in the lives of others. Chris was one of the best high school basketball players ever to play in Massachusetts, collegiate star at Fresno State, and then NBA player for the Denver Nuggets and Boston Celtics. His recovery journey has been documented in the best-selling memoir, Basketball Junkie, the Emmy-nominated ESPN Films documentary, Unguarded, and in countless local, national, and international stories by the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and Sports Illustrated, to name a few. Through Heron Talks, Chris has spoken to over 1 million students and community members, sparking honest discussions about substance use disorder and wellness. Welcome to the UDP, Chris. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And I'll be honest with you. I I have, this is our 30 something odd episode. I should know by now. 32nd. But I, I have um, not fell in love, but I really jumped into your story. And I know Calvin knows this from me. And after reading your book and, and um, you know watching Unguarded and just doing it all. I really, really uh, super excited about this. And I really, honestly, I, I did a lot of self-reflection. I didn't know where to start because there's so much to your story. But the one thing, uh, you know, uh, I, that I saw that really stuck out to me um, through your book was um, where it talks about in 2001, where you're playing for your hometown team and NBA, the Boston Celtics, uh, where you're making a rare start at the Fleet Center uh, one night, you know, at that time, and, and you're in full Celtics uniform outside in the pouring wa- rain, waiting for your drug dealer, uh, for Oxycontin. And I just tried to visualize that. So just kind of want to start there and I know we can kind of go back and, and forwards as well, but that just, to me, just growing up watching NBA basketball, I never, you know, when I was visualizing this, I couldn't fathom that situation. And to me that just showed, you know, the type of situation you were in. So I, can you explain a little bit that to our listeners that, that moment? Yeah. I mean, at that time, um, I was probably uh, taking around 1,600 milligrams of Oxycontin a day. Um, and, you know, my body uh, was completely dependent upon Oxycontin. Um, and that was kind of the toughest thing to manage, uh, you know, playing professional sports. Um, you know, your body has to be in sync, in shape, um, ready, recovering um, at all times. And uh, unfortunately, I had this 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 secret and, and this sickness of addiction to opiates. And, um, you know, my body had to have opiates in my system in order for me to function. Uh, you know, now, oftentimes that people you know, hear that story and they, and, you know, they, they, they correlate while well, he was playing in the NBA on Oxycontin. Um, 
I was I was well on my way out of the NBA because of OxyContin. Uh, I was there, you know, because of my talent initially. Um, but my career was 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 ending rapidly because of it. And you know, managing that that much uh, m- that many milligrams a day, spending that much money a week, um, you know, it was it was it was a tough, tough existence. It was a tough world to live in. And, you know, that night in the locker room, my, my uh, routine was to meet the guys who I bought it off of after the game. Um, I wasn't playing much, if at all. Um, and I'd leave them tickets. They'd come up. I'd buy my, you know, my, my Oxycontin for the week. and. Uh, and that night, I'm going to get an opportunity. And my body was already in early withdrawal. I could feel it. Um, you know, I was starting to sneeze and dry heave. And uh, and I just knew that I, I wouldn't be able to function um, physically and mentally. And, and you know, my dealer, you know, he said, I'm on my way. It's going to be tight. And, you know, he showed up 10 minutes before. Uh, and And I ran outside into the players' parking lot. And... You know, I'm in my Celtics warm-ups, and, uh, you know, I had to do what I had to do in order to get my body to function. Um, and, you know, as sad as, as tragic as a picture that is, um, you know, that's, that's the norm. That's, that's my reality at that time. And, you know, uh, you know unfortunately... And, and fortunately, that sticks out to a lot of people, the level of desperation, um, you know, but behind that level of desperation, you know, for some reason that sticks out to people. And, and I understand that. Right. It's you're a professional athlete, um, you know, living a dream. But, you know, I also had a little boy, you know, I had a son, you know, that I should have been desperate for um, and a family. Um, it's, that's just how how strong of a hold OxyContin had on me physically and mentally. Now, when you travel for, and I don't, you know, I know, I don't want to sit on this story for because there's so much to it, as Kyle said. But now, when you were traveling, there's so much travel in the NBA as well. Is you know, were you were you in, going city to city to also you know have your supplies? Is that something you were traveling with, or how were you managing that as well? Yeah, that's that was the juggle, right? That was the hustle. That was probably the most um, time-consuming, nerve-wracking uh, about all of about all of it. Um, you know, because when you go on a Texas trip and you have five games in seven days, and you're in different cities, um, you know, it's tough to manage. And and addicts and alcoholics, we don't save, right? I mean, we don't. Uh, you know, you start on a road trip with, you know, a hundred Oxycontin and, and you're going to stretch it out for a week and they're gone in the first 48 hours. Um, so it was a lot of shipping around. Uh, it was a lot of getting by my, um, hotel, hotel room phone, you know, waiting for the bell staff to say, you know, Mr. Heron, you have a package that just arrived. Uh, it was a lot of walking the street looking for the FedEx guys to see if I could get it earlier. 
um, just very sad, you know, very, very sad existence. It's, you know, I was at the mercy of, of the delivery, um, you know, and, and deliveries aren't always on time. And sometimes they come the next day and things that you can't control, but, but you want so badly to control because, because it's necessary. Um, so yeah, I, I would, I would take them with me. I would ship them. Uh, I'd have them packaged and, and sent all over the country. Um, so it was, uh, it was hectic. It was, it was hectic. It was, it was oftentimes very lonely and, and, and sad. I, I, I mean, there's a, uh, there's a clip on YouTube and there's a guy who just says, imagine your favorite player. You know, I was a diehard Kobe fan and all of us, you know, who are sports fans, just imagine your favorite player going through something like that. It's just, like I said, it's unimaginable. Um, but let's rewind now, um, back to, you know, kind of your childhood and growing up. Um, you, you know, you came from a, from a good family. Uh, father was, uh, you know, a binge drinker and whatnot. So you had support, but at the same time, there were those flaws as which all families have, but you somehow managed to find basketball as a love, you know, at the age of 12, when you first dunked and whatnot, and went on to become an all American. Uh, but you were an underdog because you were six foot one white guy. Uh, but you were mentioned in names with and you're in Calvin's black, by the way. So, <laughs> I'm black. So now you're hitting on white, <laughs> hitting on white guys here, Calvin. <laughs> um, but you, you were mentioned with names of such as Allen Iverson and, and Ray Allen and other all Americans. Can you kind of elaborate on your childhood and, uh, kind of just your development into to basketball and how it became a love for yourself? You know, I, I think basketball was forced, right? Um, it was something I was good at, but it was also something that was passed down to me generationally. Um, you know, my father was good. My grandfather, uncles, my brother was, uh, was unbelievably successful. Um, you know, he, he was two time state champion in the toughest league in Massachusetts. Um, you know, and that was a time before there was such thing as prep schools and, you know, so you know, you didn't have the best, the best players in the state all played up in the public school system. Um, and it, you know, my brother was unbelievably successful a player of the year in Massachusetts, two years in a row, state champion, two years in a row, um, went on to play at Boston college. So, um, you know, it was, it was a path that was already laid out in front of me and, and I really didn't have a choice, but to take it. Um, and you know, part of me resisted it, uh, but part of me also, you know, wanted so badly to be good at it and, and to, to accomplish things that no one else accomplished. And a lot of that was fear driven. Right. And, and with that fear of failing, um, came a thirst and a hunger, uh, and it wasn't always the healthiest. Right. And because the pressure that came with it, you know, being 14, 15 years old in high school, playing in front of 4,000 people every Friday night. And, you know, my high school had season ticket holders and, you know, they'd line up days to before the game to get tickets for the game. It was a big deal. Um, you know, and, and amongst that 4,000, those 4,000 people in the crowd, you know, mix in Rick Patino and, you know, Jim Calhoun and, and, all these big time college coaches who were evaluating me. Um, so, you know, I, I, I was driven, 
I, I was hungry. I was full of fear and anxiety. Um, and I went after it and, you know, I hit the AAU circuit at 15 years old and I wasn't considered, you know, the top, uh, but, but as I developed and, and got stronger and kept playing and the more experience I got, you know, my name started getting mentioned for McDonald's all American. And, and, you know, I was a national champion three years in a row. Um, in AAU, you know, we beat the Ray Allens, we beat the, 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 uh, the Stefan Marbury's and the Felipe Lopez's and the, and the Jerry Stackhouse's and the, you know, we beat those guys. Um, and, you know, back then to win a national championship in AAU basketball, there was no such thing as Adidas and Nike and Under Armour. You know, we all played in the same pool. You know, you, you didn't have like Nike teams playing in their Nike league. Right. You know, every, everyone showed up under the same roof and, 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 and all the talent was in the same building. So it was much different back then. Um, you know, and then I just started like, you know, with my name getting mentioned and with that type of caliber talent, um, I was nowhere near their talent. Um, I just, I, I was just winning. I was winning and I was finding a way to win. And, 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 you know, that's why my name was mentioned with those guys. Uh, so, you know, it was, um, it wasn't something I was prepared for. Like I never, you know, my sophomore year of high school, I didn't think like, Oh, in, in, in a year and a half, I'm going to be a McDonald's all American. I wasn't on that radar. Right. Then all of a sudden I kind of burst, I, all of a sudden I just kind of burst onto the scene. But the reality to my McDonald's All-American class, it was it, it was weak. You know, like we, you know, it, it, we didn't have a great uh, McDonald's All-American class. Look at the 94 class and look at the 95 class. 95 class has like KG and Garnett and Steven Jackson. And, uh, you know, it's just it was just unbelievable, the talent in the 95 class compared to the 94 class. Wow. Um, but, but still, you know, an honor, um, you know, it's something nobody can take away from me. You know, uh, it, it was it was quite an accomplishment back then. And to kind of give everyone a reference, um, Fall River, uh, doing some research, obviously, Massachusetts, Durfee High School. Um, I didn't I wasn't too familiar with it myself, um, but I'm glad I actually became because we actually for our main core business is, is staffing. We just opened up in Springfield, Massachusetts and Western Mass. So I've been trying to get more more comfortable with the state myself coming from Ohio. But I know how big, obviously, with the Collegiate Basketball Hall of Fame being in Springfield, how big basketball I'm learning and obviously hearing through your story how big basketball. So kind of talk about, you know, when you started, I think your first drink was at age 12, if I remember correctly, and kind of the pressures of your brother, Michael, and how great of, like you said, he's a two-time state champion, player of the year, so and so forth, kind of how it was kind of the work hard, play hard, and that kind of started off your, you know, the drinking and then into, I believe you did some acid and uh, different things in high school. Kind of talk about maybe some of those pressures and how you guys dealt with it back then. You know, it was a cultural thing, right? And I think it still is to this day, you know, unfortunately it's, uh, you know, it, it was something, you know, it was almost a rite of passage, like, you know, to be 16 years old, hanging out in a bar, or, you know, having keg parties in, in, in our parents' homes in the basement. Um, it was kind of the norm. Um, you know, 
nobody ever told me, hey, your dad has a drinking problem. Therefore, you possibly the chances of you having a drinking problem um, increase. Um, you know, nobody told me that, you know, if I waited till I was 21, you know, the, you know, my brain would be fully developed and the chances of suffering from drug addiction drop drastically. Would that have, would that have changed me? I don't know, but we weren't given that type of information. Right. And, and back then, and even to this day, like people aren't challenged, kids aren't challenged socially, you know, and I think that's very disappointing. Um, kids aren't challenged emotionally. Like I was always envious of the kids who can go party in high school and just be themselves. Can I, and I was like, I was like, I was like, what the, what's inside of those kids that they can talk to those girls, dance in front of that group, hang out all night, laugh, joke, and just like be them, be their authentic self the whole night. Um, you know, I had to change. I had to change myself. Um, you know, now was it the pressure? Was it my parents? you know, marriage failing? Was it my dad's alcoholism? Was it basketball? Was it, you know, my genetics? You know, I, I think they all play a factor. Um, you know, so I, I, I think I was susceptible to it and, 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 and getting, you know, getting wasted every, every Friday, Saturday, and into Sunday as, as a high school kid was the norm. And, and it was so abnormal at the same time. Something I think, and maybe you just kind of answered it there, Chris, was if you went with Rick Patino to Kentucky and made that decision versus, you know, Boston College, do you think uh, that would have, do you think it was already um, situated where you would still have had your issue or if you got, got, would have got away from Massachusetts, would that, would that have helped? Um, probably. Uh, would it have helped long term? I don't know. You know, temporarily, would it have stunted it? Would it have, would it have you know, um, put a stop to it initially? Probably. Um, but, I, but, but, you know, honestly, I think it was just always underlying. It was always there for me. Mm -hmm. um, so it was going to come out one way or another. Um, you know, and at what time, you know, in my life, was it going to kind of introduce itself? Um, so you know, I think, you know, Kentucky would have, would have probably been the smart move, you know, in hindsight, I would have, I would have probably been better off going to a prep school, having another year of high school to kind of, uh, adjust to being away from home and just living on my own and, 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 and establishing, you know, some maturity habits and, and, um, but I think, Kentucky, Florida, Wisconsin, Florida State, you know, whatever one I chose, I think it would have came up eventually. Sure. So then after you leave Durfee High School, uh, go to the All-American game in 94, as mentioned, then you go to BC, um, have a great first game. And at the end of the game, I believe, or sometime in the second half, you broke your wrist. Is that correct? Correct. And then um, that's when kind of the, the, the things at BC – um, with the cocaine and, and different things occurred with failed drug tests. And then you then um, transfer out to uh, Jerry Tarkanian. I always worry about butchering his last name. Loved him uh, growing up. And like I said, I remember kind of when I was coming up, I'm, I'm in mid-30s is, is right when you were, as a kid, kind of watching you. And um, you know, I remember that Fresno State team and 
and uh, you know something. Uh, I know that you said that about Tarkanian is you know humility, passion, family, uh, and really helped uh, kind of talk about how big it was coming back to uh, UMass and playing in in UMass, and then the next year having them come and you had two great games. Um, kind of talk how Tark, you know, what he means to you and how he you know really helped you in those four years, and we can kind of talk about some of those years as well. So I, you know, my son who is now playing college basketball. You know, I, I use that story often with him and he's probably sick of hearing it. But, um, you know, I had just, you know, I had broke my wrist, um, basically not only, you know, failed multiple drug tests and, you know, was forced to leave D.C. Um, the reality was is academically I wasn't equipped for D.C. So I was I, I kind of failed out on both fronts. Um, Coach Tarkanian reached out to me and I was so excited. Uh, you know, I was more excited to meet him than play for him, you know, and just because he, he was a legend and, and I wanted to be around that. Um, but, you know, I, I went out there, I sat out a year, which was unbelievable for me. I, that, that year of sitting out, redshirting, you know, I had a guy by the name of John Welch who coaches for the Clippers he made me, you know, he made me a basketball player. Um, you know, up until that point, I believe my, my toughness and my desire to be successful carried me. And then he taught me a whole nother way to approach basketball, um, from a skill level. Um, and I had that year of sitting out and, and, you know, coming into the following year, uh, I, one of my first games was at University of Oregon, and I remember coming out for warm-ups, and I missed my first, like, two or three shots in warm-ups, and the student section started chanting my, counting my makes and misses. And they had me so rattled at one point, I think I was, like, you know, two for 30. Um, and I got my ass kicked that game. I they were draped all over me. I couldn't do anything. I felt, um, athletically inept. I, I felt I was a step behind. Uh, I felt I wasn't tall enough for my position wasn't quick enough to beat people off the dribble. Um, I had a terrible game and, you know, the flight from Oregon to Massachusetts, um, I was contemplating like quitting, you know, saying like, Maybe I, maybe I aim too high, you know, maybe I'm not the player that they said I was. Maybe I, I need to drop down a couple of levels. Um, and this is on the, 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 you know, the eve of playing in the biggest game of my basketball career, you know, playing at UMass, they're ranked, they have the best backcourt in the country, one of, um, and I'm coming home. And, and all I'm thinking about is what a fool I'm going to make of myself. And, uh, and then I, I can't compete at this level. And, you know, I come running through that tunnel and, you know, the first shot goes in and, you know, once that first one went in and, uh, you know, my back was up against the wall and I knocked that down, it was, it was game over. You're in the zone. Um, and we, and we saw that, I mean, SMU, you know, and, and when you, when you 
I'll tell you what, the, the, the fight in you on the court is and off the court, obviously now too is, but when I, when I saw you uh, dropping bombs on SMU and UMass, I'm like, man, this guy and the see the swagger, I loved it. And I think a, a lot of people obviously loved it uh, as well. So, um, so did that coach help you, I guess, to conclude that, that piece of it did coach Welch, I believe you said his name was, did he really help you through not, not quitting? No, that was kind of a, a, a very personal space for me. You know, like I, I was all in my head. Um, Coach Welch believed in me. He brought me there, right? Mm-hmm. Every basket I made at Fresno, every time, every every move I made, I credit him for it. Um, you know, but, you know, if I miss my first shot at UMass, you know, this career looks different. You know, who knows? Um you know, I was, you know, and that's what I tell people, you know, you just, you kind of one jumper away, <laughs> you know, you're one make away from going on a run. Um, and, and that changed the, the complete trajectory of my, of my career mentally. Um, it made me a believer in myself and, you know, it, uh, from that moment on, I, I took the court and felt that I could compete with anyone and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm I'm going to be able to uh I'm going to be able to handle my own and you know mix with that mentality as well as the skill development that coach Welch gave me in the in the tutelage of Jerry Talkanian you know it it propelled my career it put me on a fast track isn't that amazing we 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 both played Chris we both played uh college football well Calvin actually played I was just a field goal holder but anyway um the thin line between winning and losing even football and urban who was on here his motto is four to six, A to B. So four to six seconds is a typical play. And, and there's so much that can happen. Like you said, in one jumper, one moment in football, you know, that's in basketball and football, it's four to six seconds. And that can truly change the trajectory of a career of a team winning a championship. It's just amazing that definitive. And there's so much work that goes into the off season, but then it can also come down to, I mean, it's more than just one play, but at certain moments are critical as we all know that can swing it from a, 10 and two season to a two and 10, right. Or making the NT oh, yeah. tournament or not even making the NIT. Right. So it's, it's amazing that you said that. I mean, that, that, that I, I didn't know learning through the book and in, in, on guarded, it doesn't, I don't, I didn't really, I, maybe it was discussed, but I didn't catch on to that. And that to me is, is a really nice piece knowledge, knowledge nugget to take away of how thin, you know, that the winning or losing or the trajectory of a career. Or, or just, yeah. And, and, and confidence, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, that first jumper doesn't go down, you know, my head goes down and, and I thought, you know, my head starts thinking, okay, this is going to be a long night. You know, that first jumper went down and I'm like, okay, let's party. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, <laughs> right. This shit is going to get real. You know what I mean? And, you know, um, but, but yeah, it's just, you know, one jumper away and, 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 and that, that kind of changed, that changed everything for me. Um, you know, and that same concept of the life I live today in recovery, you know, um, you, you know, it's that it's, you got to show up, you got to be prepared, you got to be ready, you got to do what's necessary, you got to, you got to have a team around you, you got to have, you know, you got to trust in the people that are in your life. And, and at that time, from a basketball perspective, I had great ones. Um, I had great ones in my life that trusted in me, that saw a talent in me and gave me the opportunity. Um, you know, there's a lot of players out there, right. That, that, that are qualified, talented, just 
they never got a chance to shoot that jumper. Can I, so what I find amazing is that, like you said, you had those people in your life and you had that, you know, that backing and, and that support. Um, and so you go on to get drafted and play in the NBA. And I know we talked kind of about the Celtics story and whatnot. And but your first year in the NBA, you know, you were sober um, with the help of some teammates. Um, and then you come home and that's kind of where things start to go downhill in the off season. So can you talk, speak to that? But at the same time, I'm still trying to just wrap my head around, you had the support. And so you had, like, you were comp, like you, you completely understood that you needed that support system. So where do you think you went downhill? Um, you know, that support system kind of, you know, went to the wayside and, you know, your career started to go, you know, where it did over the next, you know, 14 years or so. Or just your just your life, I should say. Yeah, I mean, listen, untreated alcoholism, untreated addiction. You can have a lot of really good people around you. Um, you can have a lot. You can have all the love and and friends and support. Um, untreated, you know, it's 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 still waiting, right? It's still it's still there. Um, and you know to have the support I had in Denver with McDice and George McLeod and Roy Rogers and Popeye Jones and Chauncey Billups. Like I had unbelievable men there. Um, and they were supportive and, and, and knew my story. And, uh, you know, I was not sober the whole season. I still had my moments. Um, I still had my moments cause I was untreated. Right. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until, you know, at 32 years old when I completely surrendered to it and realized, you know, I can have great people around me, but, but I have to do the work. You know, I have to, I have to get up my, my, my jump shots every day. I have to, um, you know, after I, I, there's no difference, right? Like I put, I put, uh, you know, like I tell people all the time, like I, as a kid, I could go to a basketball gym and take 750,000 jump shots a day. You know, I could be in there for two and a half hours working on my jumper and dribbling, but like now my recovery, the most important thing I need in my life, you know, people don't want to spend a half hour on during the day. Um, so, you know, for me, it was, it was keeping that type of support in my life, but taking action. Right. And, and doing what was necessary and, and letting that support support itself and, and support me and, and be there for me. But as long as I'm doing the work, it's going to be all right. Sure. And then kind of transitioning, Chris, past the, the um, at least the NBA and into overseas basketball. That's when you got into uh, heroin, I believe. And, and one thing that stuck out was that when you say Bismarck to Chicago to Providence and then Heather, who who's a godsend, it sounds like you wouldn't even tell her just to come back and get those, whatever drugs you were getting and then kind of go back. Can you kind of, someone that's not familiar with, and then going into, I think Iran and um, Poland or all the different places. I can't remember. And it was like six stops overseas, like how you had, how the addiction still grappled you before you came to that realization and kind of some of the, the nuances of, of obtaining, you know, to, to feed the habit or how you had to kind of get through those moments yeah bismarck to minneapolis bismarck to chicago to providence um you know 
I'm coming up on 12 years sober and I still cringe hearing it. Um, you know, I, I drove out to Bismarck, not for myself, to keep up the front of I was still a basketball player and I was going to play in the CBA. Um, and I found myself in a motel room all by myself, you know, withdrawing from heroin. And um, and I would take trips. I would, I would fly. Um, I think I did it two or three times. Um, now, mind you, I have a wife that's raising my son. Um, my daughter and they are 20 minutes from the Providence airport and I'm flying in, um, to, to, to shoot heroin in a parking lot and buy some heroin to take back with me. Um, you know, that behavior, that desperation, that level of panic and, and, um, impending doom stayed with me, you know, for the next four or five years you know, in Europe where I was buying heroin and, and cocaine in Tehran, Iran, um, you know, buying heroin in Italy off the streets and Istanbul, Turkey in, in the ghettos of, of Istanbul and, you know, China White and Beijing. Um, you know, I, I, I found heroin wherever I went, you know, where it didn't matter what country, you know, drug addiction, that level of desperation. Um, it, it's a universal language. Yeah. And then the one, another story that stuck out to me is when actually the family came out to Oakland, I believe. And, um, you were kind of strung out for a couple of days and hallucinating. And then you got out on the highway. Is that right? And just started trying to wave down where you thought, cause people are chasing you. And, and, and then, um, you know, at that point that was like a low point in should you, you know, uh, and then I think you got out of, out of, uh, if I remember the hospital and then you're passed out outside of a gas station, can you kind of walk through and I know we're kind of leading up towards the end here and get to the positive movements here, but, um, kind of, I thought that was once again, another piece, I'm just trying to visualize that. And, and even in your doctor in the unguarded, like seeing that outside of the gas station where you were like sleeping and the two homeless guys yeah. woke you up. Yeah. I mean, you know, I had been up for a couple of days. Crystal meth is a monster. Um, you know, crystal meth is, is a drug that, uh, took me to my bottom the quickest, you know, and I was, I had graduated to smoking it. Um, and I was supposed to pick up my family and, you know, I, I got off track. I thought people were following me. I took a couple of exits. The next thing you know, I'm in a completely different direction as the airport and I'm panicking and the plane's landing. And I'm like, I need to see my kids. My kids are excited to see me, my wife. And, uh, the psychosis just took over and I pulled the car over and I threw the drugs and, and I started running and cars started stopping. And then I tried to stop cars and I just wanted help. I wanted it to end. I wanted the, the people who were supposedly following me to, to back off. Um, you know, and I, and I ended up in jail in Modesto. Um, and I just remember leaving the hospital, getting tranquilized and, uh, slowing my heart rate down and, and, and getting brought into the Modesto County jail and waking up the next morning in a big, in a big cell with a bunch of people laying on the floor. And shortly after I was released and they handed me papers and my clothes and I had no money. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 
still heavily sedated and tired and I'm sleeping behind a, a 7-Eleven. And these two homeless guys came up to me and they, they thought I was, they, in their head, they thought I, I was dead. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, you know, that was a moment where, you know, I said to myself, should I just never, ever go back? Um, is it, is it too far gone? How, how am I gonna, how am I gonna repair this? What am I going to say to my children? Um, you know, who were excited to see me at the airport? Um, you know, and I let them down. Um, so, you know, that was, a that was a moment for me. And, and, you know, thankfully I was able to, to, to get through that. Um, you know, but it wasn't until a couple of years later when I got sober, um, you know, a few more overdoses and, and tragic moments and near death experiences, um, before I was able to, to get sober. And, th- and that would be, would you say the rock, rock bottom then to kind of bring it to the bottom would be the Dunkin' Donuts where you had to be revived, um, back no, in Massachusetts. Dunkin', Dunkin', no, Dunkin' Donuts was in 2004. Okay. Um, you know, the last overdose I crashed into a cemetery fence. Um, but that wasn't even it either. You know, I, I was still brought back, put in the ambulance, went to treatment, came home for the birth of my son, 40 days sober and relapsed. Um, you know, my wife saw me the next morning in the hospital and she said, you know, you have to go back to treatment. You can't stay here. You look horrible. I can't believe you did this to our family again. You know, my future was, you know, uh, in doubt. I had no idea what my family was going to look like. I I jumped in the car. I went back to treatment and I, I stuck, um, you know, I, I had no other options, no place to go. Um, but I stayed in treatment and, and in that process, you know, I healed my family healed, um, the time that I needed, um, you know, they needed the same amount of time. Um, you know, and, and this is a family illness and, and, you know, my lows were felt, uh, by them as well. Um, you know, and, you know, I stayed in treatment for 11 months, um, in total. And, you know, because of that, you know, I'm coming up on 12 years sober. And, um, that's amazing. Congratulations again on that. And something on day top, I think it's important on the recovery piece of the pot sink. And like you said, coming out of that, that's where you kind of found, it sounds like you found yourself and kind of the vision moving forward. Is that kind of where you said, okay, Hey, I can now visualize myself overcoming this, staying here at Daytop, getting the help and then getting back to, okay, Hey, you know, this road to, you know, complete sobriety. Well, in my mind, in my mind, the only thing I had left really was to be a dad. Mm -hmm. Right. Right? I wasn't sure if my wife was going to have me take me back. Um, but I knew I still had that right. And, and I still, I knew I had the opportunity to be a father. Um, and I sat in that pot sink for about three weeks, washing everybody's dishes for like 12 hours a day. And, you know, no access to a phone, no clue what was happening at home. And I just that in that pot sink in that little room, I, I said to myself, like, you know, from this day forward, you're going to be the father that they deserve. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I held on and, and, you know, that was my commitment. And, and I think that speaks to, you know, you said you were the basketball was kind of forced, but 
at the end of the day, the, the, the competitor that was in you to be able to make it to that level of, of to play professional basketball and that fight, I think that speaks volumes to you eventually being able to, to overcome this. You know, you say it's a family illness and I can only imagine, you know, what your family went through. Um, but you know, what would you say, um, why would you say your wife, you know, she stuck around? Cause I know she, she was, it sounds like she obviously was on her last leg. Why did, uh, why did Heather stay around? You know, because it, again, it's a family illness, right? My sickness, you know, didn't make her healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Heather's trying to keep a family together. That's some people don't understand when you live in addiction, you know, one year, you know, a decade goes by and it feels like it was a year. Right. Right. Cause you're, you're constantly living on the cliff on the edge of the cliff. You're constantly living and, you know, waiting for the next worst moment. Um, the next embarrassment, the next shameful, you know, uh, uh, story that you have to tell to your family. Um, and you know, 10 years go by pretty quickly living in that panic mode. Um, you know, so my wife was, she, you know, as strong as she was, she was, she was suffering from my sickness. And, um, you know, I just thank God that she hung on as long as she could. Um, and, 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 you know, waited for me to find myself and, uh, you know, because the reality is, is we've been married for 21 years. It's, we've been married twice, right? The first 10 years of our marriage, I was, I was very sick and suffering. And the last 11 have been, you know, living in recovery. Right. So you, uh, you, it's no secret. You are now an amazing, a motivational speaker. Uh, as you said, you're traveling over yep. 200 times a year, man, and you're sharing your story. Um, and I watched your Ted talk and I would encourage anyone to go check your Ted talk out or any of your, uh, any of your videos or, or, um, anytime you're presenting. Uh, but you know, you talk about one thing in there. You said, um, if you were a kid, um, would you look up to you? And you mentioned just wanting to be able to help one parent and one kid every time you go speak. You talk a little bit about kind of your motivational speaking and the message you're trying to get out there. Yeah, no doubt. You know, my, you know, my speaking obviously, you know, has evolved over the years. It's, it's matured, it's grown. It's, you know, you, you, you know, after doing it for nine years, you kind of, you adapt and, you know, when I first started, it was just telling my story. Um, I'd walk into a high school and I would tell them everything that I had gone through in my life. Um, and, you know, I found out after a few years, you know, it was, uh, that kids deserved more than that. You know, it, it, you know, when it comes to addiction, you know, we put so much emphasis on the worst day and we forget the first day. You know, we talk about how drug addiction is going to end rather than can we discuss why it's beginning? Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I stopped telling kids my story. I stopped talking more about uh, about the kid inside of me when I was 12, when I was 14, when I was 16 in the basement um, and the emotions behind that and the insecurities that I felt. Um, to make it more relatable and, and identifiable. Like, um, so, you know, my, my latest 
film the first day is the way I I discuss um, have conversation with kids, and when I say kids, I mean high school, middle school, or high school kids. Um, you know, when I speak to communities or or, or NFL or NBA or college football, um, a lot of it's my story. Um, you know, they they need to hear you know what I went through, where I was at, and how low I I was able to get. Um, as well as the, the comeback, um, you know, the redemption side of this, that recovery is possible. And, you know, for me, it's the greatest, it's the greatest achievement of my life. Um, you know, the fact that for the last 11 plus years, uh, I've, I've, I haven't changed myself. Um, you know, and for a guy like me, for a guy who suffers the way I suffered and what I suffer from uh, 11 and a half years, one day at a time, not changing is, is a, is, is a huge accomplishment. I'll say you turned out to be a great man, you know, and, and having two young kids as Kyle does as well. Um, you know, being new to this fatherhood thing, man, but to hear you say being, you know, that was the one thing I think that got you over the hump. I think, you know, just speaks volumes, man. So uh, kudos to you for sure. Um, so we end each session, Chris. We have rapid fire. So put you on the hot seat a little bit. We try to have a little bit of fun. So I got I got the yep. first one here for you. Um, are you willing to grow out the hair and dye it blonde again? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. That was an easy no. And listen, listen, listen. It doesn't mean that I don't have what it takes to go blonde again. It means I would never humiliate my children <laughs> by going blonde. Again. No frosted tips. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, 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 no fit. Like it. All right, next one. Um, who wins in a game of horse? You or Chris Jr.? Uh, probably, I would say me, um, because I would take him to. I would take him too deep, where he can't really swim yet. You know, I, I take him to the deep end and, you know, years and years of, of, you know, especially once you get to the professional level of shooting. For, for a college kid, um, if it depends, he's got me easy. Um, but I'd take him to the deep end. So I'll say I would. I love that. Yeah. Especially <laughs> on the fatherhood. We're on your side now. So we got, we got little guys. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Have you read a book or listened to any podcasts? If so, what would you, uh, would you, would you recommend from a book or a podcast? You know, I'm, I'm a Woj guy, right? I don't know if many people understand this. Woj is, has been with me since I was 18. Um, Woj was the reporter for Fresno state. Um, Woj, Andy Katz was a reporter for the newspaper too. Um, Risha Candidate at ESPN, as well as Michael Smith. Um, uh, so we had a, a power group of people covering us. Um, Woj has always kept it real with me. He's always been uh, authentic and, and told me the truth told me things that were uncomfortable for me to hear. Um, you know, he's always guided me in the right direction. Um, so I'm Woj all the way. Um, you know, I love Up in Smoke. 
you know, and it's kind of, it's kind of interesting because as a sober guy, mm-hmm. you know, I love, I love watch listening to, to Matt Bonds and, and, and Jack. I mean, it's, it's like, they're extremely, you know, bright and intelligent and got their pulse on things. Um, so I love their podcast. I love watching their show. Um, That's you know, good. the books, you know, you know, for me, the book is all about, you know, is Alcoholics Anonymous, man. You know, that's what I do. Um, I'm AA. I'm 12 steps. It's the life I live. Yeah. And speaking of Woj, we uh, recently interviewed um, Casey O'Brien, who overcame cancer four times for Minnesota football. And Woj did uh, his piece for College Game Day, and it was incredible. He's very gifted. And, and actually, speaking of all those guys that covered, covered you at Fresno, that's incredible. I don't know if there's a more uh, all-star lineup out there than uh, those guys that you just mentioned all in you know, one area, especially like Andy Katz and like you said, Michael Smith, all those guys. It's that's, that's crazy. Crazy, crazy to think about. Yeah, that. it really, it was. And, I, and, and it's not Michael Smith from the Boston Globe. I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Now he's on Fox sports. Oh, um, I know who you're talking about. Oh shoot. Um, uh, yeah, I know who you're talking. But anyway, about. we, we, you know, we had, like I said, we had two ESPN guys, you know, and, and with Risha Candidate, um, Woj and Katz, you know, and it was always, it was a funny dynamic, you know, Katz walked in the gym and Katz was a Tarkanian guy, um, you know, and they kind of played good cop, bad cop. And I don't think they played it because, you know, Woj was always pretty true to, true to what, it, you know, what he saw, you know, always true to what, how he saw it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting how life turns out, you know, like, you know, back then, um, you know, Woj was reporting some hard truths and, you know, now it's, I have such a great relationship with him, um, that I would trust him with anything. Um, and, and he's been, and, you know, he doesn't even, I don't say it to him enough, but, but he's been a mentor for me in a lot of ways and, and a sounding board for me in multiple areas of my life that's awesome man well great to hear i know we took a little bit extra time today with you chris and um super appreciated you're super uh, a great uh you know underdog for us and you know we really appreciate everything you're doing in the world um you know continuing to be sober and, and providing that message to many people that need to hear that like you said to prevent hopefully other people to uh face some of those uh, tribulations and, and pain points you had. So thank you, Chris, for your time and, and much continued success and, uh, anything we can do along the way, please let us know. Thanks brothers. I appreciate it. Take care. All right. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for listening to the underdog podcast. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on the Apple and Google podcast apps and send our Twitter handle, a screenshot of your rating at underdog pod with your shirt size for a chance to win a free t-shirt. See you next week on the UDP.